Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Thank you all. Um, those who are going to a little worship can be dismissed at this time. If you're staying in here with us, I invite you to open your Bibles. Luke chapter 11. Uh, it's also there in your, in your bulletin. If you're just by chance visiting with us this morning, again, welcome. So glad that you're here. Uh, we hope this is a, a warm, welcoming place where you can worship and just explore the, the truth claims of Jesus. Um, if you are, if you haven't been here recently, you're catching us in the middle of a sermon in the Gospel of Luke. And you should see here today we're in the Lord's Prayer, and this is part three. So we're only five words into the Lord's Prayer. So you hadn't missed a ton, and yet there's a lot here. So um, this morning uh, we're continuing to explore what it means to pray like a Christian. You know, 2,000 years ago, Jesus looked at his disciples, and this morning he's looking at us through his word, and, and he's saying, pray like this. So this is God's word, Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, well, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. It's God's word. Let's pray. Father, for this next little bit of our worship, uh, we ask that you would come and keep us eyes to see and ears to hear. Uh, give us minds that don't don't wander all over the place. But may we lock in just for a little bit uh, to to learn more about prayer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this uh, biblical reality of the kingdom of God, uh, that, that we live as citizens today, at, that we live as citizens in a kingdom, uh, can be really confusing because, one, you know, the last time I checked, at least, uh, we don't live in a, a kingdom. You know, we don't have a king that we have to bow to. In many ways, Americans, like, we fled all that. Like, we're not about the monarchy. Uh, we have a president who is elected, and this president has a shelf life. Um, and yet, as we read the Bible, we find that if we are in Christ, it, it doesn't matter what country we live in, <laughs> it doesn't matter who the president is, it doesn't matter what team we pull for, um, none of that stuff is our first allegiance as Christians. As one songwriter put it, our first allegiance is not to a flag, a country, or a man. It is not to democracy or even blood but it's to a king and a kingdom. And since that's the case, we need to figure this out. Like, what, what does the Bible mean when it talks about kingdom of God? We, we need a, a biblical theology of, of kingdom. Um, okay, but before we, we do that, there's another reason why this is, is so confusing. I've had, I've had a lot of people tell me, because this isn't the first time we've talked about kingdom, I've had a lot of people tell me that they just don't understand this concept of kingdom because as you read through the Gospels, it, it seems kind of like they're talking about two different things. It's kind of hard to nail down exactly what Jesus is talking about. 
because Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven, whereas Mark and Luke talk about the kingdom of God. And, and so we read these parables wondering, okay, well, is, is this describing heaven and what the kingdom's going to be like one day, or is it something that we experience today? Um, is this, you know, a way of life now, or is this kind of like a future event that we can kind of just hope for? <laughs> I'm confused. And, of course, you know, the theologi- theologians in the room know the answer, right? You know that the answer is both, right? They're both and. Um, but to clarify, because it is really confusing, that remember when Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven and, and Luke mentions kingdom of God, they're, they're not talking about two different things, they're talking about the exact same thing. Because if you remember what we found last week, that Matthew was writing primarily to Jews who had certain misgivings about using the name of God in their everyday speech. And so Matthew, according to many scholars, Jesus' words was very likely kingdom of God. And Matthew, knowing his audience, he just kind of, eh, we don't want to use God's name because it's going to offend all the Jews. And he just put kingdom of heaven in. So it's the same teaching, talking about the exact same thing, so, to us, the don't tread on me, uh, sick, simper, tyrannous, uh, Second Amendment, red-blooded Americans, uh, what does this mean for us to pray, Lord, your kingdom come? Well, let's talk about that. And in doing so, hopefully we'll deconstruct some false notions that maybe we see in our country. We'll see that God's kingdom is not a country. <laughs> it's not a system of government. It's not a Christian reconstructionist movement. And, you know, let's, let's send the red heifers to Israel to kind of get the ball rolling over there. It, it, it's not even a geographic region on a political map. So hopefully we'll, we'll deconstruct the false notions and walk out of here with a worldview of what the Bible says when it says kingdom of God. Which simply put, here's just a very simple definition. God's kingdom is God's rule and God's reign. Wherever God rules and God reigns, that, that's where the kingdom is. So that's the lens through which we view all of life. So here's the 30,000-foot biblical theology of kingdom before we get to the application. Um, Y'all know this. Scripture begins and ends. It's like these bookends with this announcement, this declaration that that God is king. You know, in Genesis, Moses went all the way back to the start of the universe, to the very beginning, and he said the fundamental reality of all of existence is this. In the beginning, there was God and no one else. Like God is preeminent above, above all. And God sovereignly created everything out of nothing, ordering the chaos in order to make a beautiful place, a beautiful creation in which he called good. And then God created man in his image to live and serve as his vice regents, right? His, his royal ambassadors of his creation, his kingdom. And so from the beginning, God called Adam and Eve royal priests who just as priests in the Old Testament attended the temple, they kind of kept it up and make sure it ran properly. Just as they attended the temple, Adam and Eve were to attend creation. They were to rule over the fish and the birds and every living thing that moved. And as God's royal ambassadors, they, were, they devoted themselves to filling the earth and working it so that all of the earth would be like the Garden of Eden. It would have God's glorious presence, God's glorious rule. Uh, it was paradise. And, and so, I mean, this is, so this sermon isn't just like this, you know, little takeaway that we, you know, next week's going to have another sermon. But like, this is one of those 
those passages, like this is one of those big meta-narratives of all of life. This is the reason why many of us burn out and sometimes why we lose our way, uh, why we can feel so unfulfilled in life is because at the very beginning of creation, um, I mean, if you, if you believe there is a God who created you, then you also see that at the very beginning, our creator imbued us with a specific call, <laughs> which is not the American dream, but, but he gave us this innate purpose to, to live beneath his rule and to order his kingdom for his glory. And, and what's more is, you know, that purpose that he gave Adam and Eve, it remained even after the fall. Now, of course, it's a lot harder now after the fall. But if you read through the entire Old Testament from Abraham to Moses to David all the way up to through the prophets, it's clear that God's people were set apart to, to live, worship, and work under God's or Yahweh's rule and reign. And, and, and this is where it's tempting to say, yeah, but that's like ancient Israel. And that, that's Old Testament, and, and things are different now. And you know, the siren call of secular culture tells us that we're enlightened, and we've evolved, and we're modern, and all that's just craziness. And that might be the case, if not for this historical person named Jesus, who showed up saying things that were to show us that Israel, in many ways, Israel, the Old Testament, was kind of the beta test for what God was doing with all of his people. So Jesus came to rescue us and to bring us back to the beginning, you know, back to what was lost, to, to bring us back to that, that to, back to paradise. And so Jesus came on the scene and he began to preach, teaching in the synagogues, and we find, what was he teaching about? Preaching the good news of the kingdom. If we were to ask what was the central message of Jesus, all we'd have to do is look to Matthew 4, 17, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. You know, Jesus, is, his most famous sermon is the Sermon on the Mount, right? And uh, a lot of times we think that's a sermon about morals, about, you know, how to be a good person. But that's not a list of morals. Jesus preached it to be all about kingdom living, answering the question, about how do we as citizens of this kingdom, of God's kingdom, how do we live here uh, in this life, under his rule. And, and there he gave the chief pursuit of all believers. He said, look, I, I know y'all worry about a lot of things. I, I know. I, I know that you, you, you seek after a lot of things. But he ended, kind of ended his sermon saying this, but seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. Like, everything's going to fall into place. Like, let's just keep the first thing the first thing, right? In other words... Living in God's kingdom, under God's rule, as his kingdom ambassadors, like that is what human flourishing looks like. like that, that's what it means to be truly alive, fully alive. So Jesus was constantly talking about this. He said things like, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Y'all remember this parable, right? It's, it's a mustard seed that a man took and he planted in his field. It's the smallest. It's such a small seed. But when it's grown, it is large enough so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God, it is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and he covered it up. And then in joy, he goes and he sells all that he has so that he can have enough money to go buy that field. He's saying that the kingdom of God is so amazing. Like, it's worth joyously giving everything up for 
And, you know, look, I mean, really, Jesus never stopped talking about this. Even after Jesus died and rose again, what do you think he was talking about? We find that he, Acts 1, Jesus presented himself alive to his apostles after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days, and what did he talk about? He's speaking about the kingdom of God. It's like he's a broken record. He can't stop talking about it. Okay, well, after Jesus ascended to heaven and the early church began, Luke describes in Acts what the earliest church looked like. If, if we were to go to a worship service or a home church of the early church, this is what the sermon was about, the good news of the kingdom of God. And that wasn't just in Jerusalem. You know, we also read that in Ephesus, Paul spent three months in the synagogue there, quote, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. And listen, listen to how Paul's ministry ended. This is the end of Acts. Acts 28 tells us that while he was awaiting his trial uh, in Rome, that people would come, they could come and see him in great numbers. And Paul spent from morning till evening testifying to the kingdom of God. And then Luke finished by adding that for two more years while he's awaiting trial, boldly and without hindrance, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, as if that's not, not enough of a, of a biblical theology, then finally there's Revelation. Remember, Revelation was a, a vision that was given to John to sustain people living in the last days, which that's us. And, and so it was a vision that John received of King Jesus riding a war horse, like trampling down all of his and our enemies. And so the Bible, again, it begins with, with our, our king creating and then the Bible ends with our king returning and, and fully consummating, fully restoring his kingdom. And I love what John recorded in Revelation 11, that there's coming a day when there will be loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, I noted that the more skeptical and disillusioned might say, what a cute thought. I mean, that's how all kids' stories end, right? Just, it's a good note. Oh, that it were true. Because that does not describe reality, like, at all. And, and yet, like, even that thought, so, like, even that thought that that just doesn't sound very realistic, that thought nails a major theme in the New Testament, that when Jesus died and rose again, he did so to save and bring his people back into the kingdom. Which means, as followers of Christ, in a very real way, the kingdom is right here, right now. Like, we're living in the kingdom. Now, Christ is our reigning king, and we're his blood-bought citizens. And yet, at the same time, something's rotten in Denmark, right? as they say. Um, we see and experience suffering and pain. And, and we notice that our world is a far cry from what we just read in Revelation. Our world is a far cry from what Brian read in Daniel 7, the, the throne room of God. And of course, that, that reality, the reality of pain and suffering, how could a good God do all this? I mean, that wrecks many people's faith. And yet scripture says, like the New Testament doesn't shy away from that. They realize that, that tension. Scripture says, don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. In fact, the New Testament authors put a label to this halfway house that we find ourselves in today. Um, that when it comes to God's kingdom, there is an already, right? There is an alreadiness to it. Uh, but there's also a not yet. 
reality. So the kingdom is already here. You know, the decisive battle over evil and sin has already been won on the cross, but it hasn't been fully consummated yet. Full restoration hasn't happened. And so the evil and the suffering we experience now is in many ways similar to like a desperate terrorist attack from an enemy who is already defeated, just not yet destroyed. It's sort of, it's sort of like this. And look, I've got to give credit to uh, Eleanor Hinckley and then Derek Hinckley by way of Eleanor uh, for giving me this illustration. I had no clue this happened. Um, in 1919, there was this really disastrous event in Boston, which has been called the Great Molasses Flood of Boston. Have y'all heard about this? The Great Molasses Flood. Um, a huge storage tank filled with 2.3 million gallons of, of molasses uh, was stored in the kind of a downtown region, uh, and it burst. There's lots of debate on why it burst, but the big tank burst, resulting in a wave of molasses that eyewitnesses claim was anywhere between 25 to 50 feet high, if you can imagine that. Like, I don't even, this is what, 20 foot, 30 foot ceiling? Bigger than the ceiling. Um, the, this 25 to 50 foot wave of molasses was sent rolling down the streets at 35 miles per hour. It killed 21 people, injuring 150 others, not to mention horses, dogs, cats that were all lost. And, and when, I, when Derek was telling me, I was like, dude, how do, you like, how do you drown in molasses? You know, you think you could kind of just get out. Here's how. Um, it happened during the winter, the Boston winter. And uh, what happened was as the warm molasses that were warmed in that tank, as it hit the cool Boston winter air, y'all know what happens with sticky stuff as it gets cold, right? It, it quickly became very thick, very sticky, uh, causing many people who were drowning in it to suffocate because they couldn't get out. Uh, one eyewitness said that horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. And this is a really tragic event. Okay, well, it, it took a while, but Boston, as you know, I mean, you go there today, there's no sign of molasses anywhere. Right? They, they cleaned it up. They cleaned up all the evidence of the great molasses flood of 1919, and yet... Though the streets were clean and the buildings were rebuilt, the residents claimed that for decades afterwards, like, like decades after this event, on hot summer days, you could still smell molasses. It's just, in, it's just ingrained in the, the dirt, I guess. You could still smell its presence. Okay. The cross wiped out Satan's molasses flood on humanity. But today, just like the residents in Boston, you know, we can still smell his stench, can't we? Um, there are days where it rises up and this is just, it's ugly. And we'll continue to be until our King Jesus returns to make all things new, in which Revelation says that our King will come and he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and death and pain and depression and anxiety and all the heartbreak we face in this life will be no more and he will make all things new. I love the way new tennis balls smell. You know that tennis ball smell? Um, the smell of new cars. The smell of new carpet, right? Um, you ever wonder what, what the new kingdom will smell like? It won't smell like Satan, I'm sure. Um, maybe it will smell like a molasses, I don't know. Uh, but what will the kingdom smell like? But until that day comes, the, the New Testament tells us that we live in the last days, that we are resident aliens in this life, which means we, we kind of live here, and to some degree, we belong here. 
But in a real, a very more real sense, our, our home is with our king in his kingdom. And we're waiting for him to usher it in. So the kingdom is not just like this major thing from the beginning to the end of the Bible, but is like this single overarching reality of all of life, right? From the beginning of time to the end of time is the kingdom of God. And I know with that we'll be like, okay, well, great. All right, what does that actually mean for us? And here's how we'll, we'll start landing. Well, obviously we're not in the Garden of Eden anymore. But as we've said, we still have the same call that Adam and Eve received in the, the garden. Peter tells us that if we are in Christ, that we're God's chosen people. That if we're in Christ, we're his royal priesthood. You know, Paul goes on to say that if we've been saved, not only are we forgiven and loved, our sins are wiped away, and we, we've, we've punched our ticket to heaven. Um, sadly, most Christians, that's just kind of where we, we hang out for, for like 50, 60 years. Paul says, no, no, like in the time being, like you're called to be God's ambassadors. You know, we're not called to twiddle our thumbs till we get to heaven. So we're, we're called to subdue the earth and to expand God's kingdom, preparing the way of our Lord. I think I've shared this before, but our, our house is on the 300 Oaks Road Race route, right? And for years, I don't know what this says about us, for years the city would mail us um, this like, announcement. Basically, it was like a, a, a warning uh, reminding us that, that come race day, our, our yard better be in tip-top shape, okay? Because we're all doing, we're all banding together as Greenwoodians to make Greenwood look beautiful for our guests, right? Okay, well, in the future, it's kind of like that, but we've got something bigger than a race to prepare for, don't we? Our king is returning, and until he does return, we have the privilege of preparing the way of the king. All right, so what does that mean? Well, first... In Scripture, we find that God's kingdom, is, in, in one sense, it's a spiritual kingdom, right? Which means this could be one of the most scary yet exciting things we can pray. To pray, God, your kingdom come, is a prayer of surrender. Right? We're asking that God would come and reign and rule in our lives and, and that we would walk in his way, not the Delta way, uh, not our way. And this is a prayer of faith. Because it's really tempting, it's so hard, right, to hold on or to hold things back. And we'll say things like, God, I'll give you my soul, but, but I'm not going to give you my business because, I, you know, I've got an MBA and I don't know about you, God, I know more about business than you do. Or, God, I, I can't give you my hobbies, I can't give you my time. And God's like, that, that's not how this kingdom thing works. You know, you're either all mine or, or you're not mine. So remember, a few chapters ago, Jesus was very emphatic when he said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so this, is, this prayer, your kingdom come, is like a go all in against the house type of prayer. Um, it's a prayer of faith. So it's spiritual, so that means when we reach out to the broken, uh, when we pray for our, our sick friends or our hurting friends, when we share Christ to the broken, uh, when we fellowship with other believers, we're tearing away just a little corner of the darkness uh, so that the kingdom light can shine through. It, when we pray, your kingdom come, we're asking that our homes would be kingdom outposts in this dark world. That our homes would be places where God's rule is acknowledged in our just household conversations, in our prayers, in our ordinary routines of life. We, we pray this for our church, right? That our church would not bow to any man 
but that God would conform our lives, that, that God would actually affect our relationships and mold it to be like the gospel. We pray this for our city, right? Asking that Greenwood would be a community that bends the knee to God and in response to God's divine hospitality to us, this is a place where strangers become neighbors and where the poor receive protection and where the weak are defended and businesses prosper and the arts flourish all for God's glory. We pray your kingdom come to say death be to tyrants. We hate tyrants. We hate bullies, right? Because to pray for God's kingdom is to pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan would be destroyed. It is to pray in the words of that great Christian hair metal band, Striper. I don't know if you ever listened to Striper. Highly unlikely, right? Striper has this song called To Hell with the Devil. It's to pray, really, to hell with evil. To hell with shame and condemnation. And it's to run to our Savior and to delight in our King who is the tyrant slayer. As the larger catechism puts it, this is a prayer that those still in their sins would be converted and that they would know the goodness of God. And at the same time, this is a prayer that for all of us who are already in Jesus, that we would be even more comforted and even more built up. So your kingdom come. But you know, as, as we close for real this time, God's kingdom is also, it's also a physical kingdom. You know, there's this kind of left-behind theology that, that at some point God's just going to burn up this whole place and we're going to soar into the clouds and live amongst the angels, right? Um, but if you, if you actually read the Bible, that's not what it says. That the full kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like earth. It's going to be right here, which means... We also have the privilege to serve the kingdom even today in very tangible ways. In the simplest of terms, and I know this is going to sound a little romantic, but forgive me. Like when we pick up a stick in our yard, like we are ordering chaos. We're kicking back the decay of sin. When we cut our grass, when we fold our laundry, when we clean the dishes, like all these simple things, we're pushing back decay, making the kingdom beautiful for our returning king. I mean, look, this unlocks a whole world, right, of being kingdom ambassadors. So Christians, we are those who garden for God's glory. I mean, we receive joy in it, but like we garden for God's glory. Artists, we create for God's glory. You know, we, it, it, we try to it, in some way highlight the beauty of the kingdom. Um, I just started my little family. Uh, Jude and I yesterday went on a beauty walk. Uh, not that we would be more beautiful, but just we were searching for beauty. We weren't going to return home until we found something beautiful that we could give thanks to God for. Um, you know, farmers, you beat back the chaos every day. I mean, literally cultivating the earth for God's glory as a Christian farmer. Teachers, I know it can, you can sound like you are battling, battling the decay of sin every day in your classroom. But teachers, accountants, uh, preachers, uh, mothers, you know, you, you live this every day. You may order the most chaos, right? And this isn't even touching on those beautiful things like cooking and dancing and just joyously rediscovering the beauty of God's good creation and fighting back the decay to restore what was lost to sin. So when we pray your kingdom come, we're declaring that even in the mundane routine of life, that we're working for our king and his kingdom. And then lastly... When we pray your kingdom come, 
we're really crying out for consummation. You know, from a place of, of really pain and despair, I mean, it's actually, I think it was crisis. And Andrew Peterson wrote a song that captures this longing. He asked, do you feel the world is broken? And to that, I want to answer every day. Do you feel the shadows deepen every year? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from breaking through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? I do. To be a Christian isn't to stick our, our heads in the sand, but it's actually to acknowledge the groaning. And it's to cry out the same thing that John cried out at the end of Revelation after seeing the beauty of Jesus. And to pray your kingdom come is to cry out that Jesus would come back soon and make all things new. So that's our prayer, y'all. It's come, Lord Jesus. Come. Well, let me pray for us. Father, as we think about your kingdom and we come out to your kingdom meal of the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would set apart this time and these regular elements, this cracker, this juice, to serve as a means of grace to the people. And Lord, you've given us this clear declaration and call to as long as until you return. Uh, we do this in independence. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.